before I read the text, and I'm not going to read all 28 verses just to let you know, but before I read the text, I want to briefly comment on something uh, from yesterday. Uh, when Michael Elliott and I left Houston, we were thinking, wow, it's really, really hot and humid down here. And then Michael said, yeah, but it's hotter in Omaha. And uh, I guess there was a record set yesterday. Over 100 years, uh, record, that record had held, and yet yesterday it was broken. And maybe we'll break another one today, I don't know. But if I'd only known, I would have selected Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the <laughs> furnace instead of Daniel in the lion's den. But I wasn't going to try to change that up yesterday. Okay, let's uh, hear the word of God. I'll read beginning at Daniel 5, uh, verse uh, 30, through chapter 6, verse 5. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom, and over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that's a, that the satraps might give account to them, so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would uh, open our eyes to it uh, have us see it in a new light. This is a very familiar story to us. And yet we pray, Father, please teach us. Have us not tune out just because we think it's fami uh, familiar. Lord, we ask your grace, your Holy Spirit, to be at work in our hearts in this place. May we uh, honor you by our attention and by our focus and by our purpose in leaving here and uh, employing what we've learned. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Friday before uh, last weekend, so it's been nine days, uh, Tabitha and Hannah and I went to see the play Wicked down at the Orpheum. And I'd purchased tickets that were very expensive and somewhat against my better judgment a few months ago, but I'd heard it was wonderful. I work with a fellow whose wife is very involved in these things, and uh, he said that this one is really, really good. And so we did go. And it was. It was really good. Um, I have to admit, though, at points, at the slow parts, I tended to doze off a little bit. And by then, it's a sunk cost. You know, the money's gone. And so if you value your sleep more than the play that's going on, sleep away. But then, then the next scene would start, and it would awaken me. And so I'm glad, because some of it was really, really good, and I'm glad I woke up for it. And uh, yet, what I had already been thinking about in my study and meditation on Daniel 6 was that this can make for a beautiful play. Now, maybe people have produced a play. Megan, any, any idea if this has ever been produced in a play? Yes. So I'll have to evaluate that, whether I think it's a good one. I want you to think of this today as I present it as a play. 
I'm going to present, and hopefully that you'll be able to track it a little bit, a play in two acts, six scenes. Uh, the uh, Wicked play had two acts and 31 scenes, so a lot fewer. And so, uh, but I really will try to set the theme as we open and close each of these acts. I think it will help you to really understand and feel what's going on that these people are experiencing. So now, I just read you the first uh, scene, and yet I hadn't set the stage yet, but yet it's one of those kind of introductory scenes where you can see what's going on. You can see that Darius has just been made leader of this new kingdom. He is uh, restructuring his government. I mean, that's not a trivial matter to do, to restructure a government. Yet, our text tells us why he felt this was necessary. Uh, he set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom, and over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps, those 120 men, might give account to these three governors, so that the king would suffer no loss. Darius was restructuring his government because his government was suffering loss, which is money, wealth. So whomever was leading the government before was stealing from him, and he wants to put an end to that if he can. It's his kingdom. It's his to rule. It's his wealth to dispense as he sees fit. And so he doesn't want to be made a pauper through these people he has under his authority stealing from him. So he wants to suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. The king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. He wanted the success of whatever Daniel was doing with whatever satraps he had responsibility for to be what prevailed across his whole kingdom. We've seen this before in Scripture. This is what Pharaoh did, right? Pharaoh did this with Joseph. He set him over his whole kingdom. Prior to that, the jailer had set Joseph over all that he did. And so, see, God was blessing these men. God was blessing Daniel and having these men to recognize it. King Darius recognized this. We don't know how long he had been king before he chose to do this restructuring, but in the restructuring, he's already made Daniel a governor. Out of 123 men, Daniel is one of the three that's chosen to lead these men. So, obviously... This is important. But listen to verse 3 again. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. Who wrote the book of Daniel? Daniel. So he's bragging on himself here, isn't he? But let me point out another place where someone brags on himself. In Numbers 12, 3, now, the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. Who wrote that verse? Moses. You know, we joke about that. We always joke about one another being so humble. I'm so humble, you know. And yet Moses wrote that line under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's just remarkable. And so, see, Daniel is here doing the same thing. He's admitting to the fact that God recognizes him as this incredible guy. 
and so on. I don't know if he cringed when he wrote it. Maybe not. But we know, and, and if you've ever studied the canonization of Scripture and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we know it's not like Daniel became a robot and he's just, you know, his eyes roll up in his head and then he starts writing. That's not how it worked. God used these men. They were cognizant of what they were writing. And so he wrote that, that he was this incredible guy, and the king was thinking of putting him over everything, everybody. But the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful. Now, this word, faithful, what is it referring to? Is it referring to faithfulness towards God at this point? No, it's not. He is being faithful towards the king and towards the responsibilities that he has to the king in this kingdom. Daniel was a faithful man, and he did not steal. He did not cheat. He did not lie. He treated that king's property like it was his own. And so all of us must know that this is how God always wants us to behave. He always wants us to treat the property of those for whom we're working like it is our own. Treat it well. Now, that, now if you treat your own property badly, then that's boo-hoo on you. You must treat it well. That's honoring to God. That's what God wants you doing. So you have no right to misuse or abuse another's property, even he worked for Nebuchadnezzar. That was not a good man. And yet, he treated that king's property with as if it belonged directly to God because that's what Daniel knew. Everything is God's. And so we husband it on behalf of whomever is in the hierarchy, ultimately, for God on his behalf. Now, so these men are... He says, we shall not... Make, find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Now, I want you to focus on something, though. At the end of verse 3, the king gave thought to setting Daniel over the whole realm. We don't even know that it's out of his head at this point. But let me read you something from Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 10.20 says this. Do not curse the king, even in your thought. Do not curse the rich, even in your bedroom. For a bird of the air may carry your voice, and a bird in flight may tell the matter. So, God is commanding us to be shrewd in this. He doesn't want us blabbing about things, because the evil will hear it as well. And they are so much more shrewd sometimes in the ways of the world than we are. So these men could find no charge against Daniel. Yet you can see, and this is where scene one of act one is closing, you can see that they have an idea. These men said, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So the lights dim and you see these evil men plotting. I'll read verses six through nine. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom and administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors, 
have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. The governors and satraps thronged before the king. And so you can picture the scene. You can picture the stage. You see King Darius hard at work here, and all these men march in and start, ah, they all start talking. They're all excited. They're all upset. Oh, they're so excited. We've got this thing we want you to do. What is the very first thing that they said? The very first thing. Three words. Well, not their greeting. Their greeting was, O king, live forever. But then they said, all the governors. How many governors were there? Three. Do you think Daniel is with them? No. So both governors, the other governors are here. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors have consulted together. Daniel was not in on that consultation. We know that. He would not have agreed to it. if He would have gone with them on this little excursion. We don't know how many satraps, we don't know how many of these people really were consulted, but we know it was a diabolical plot. We know they're lying with the first three words out of their mouths. Now, Darius is not a fool. That's why I started reading at verse 30 of the previous chapter. Belteshazzar was killed by God. The Medes and Persians have invaded the empire. And I talked about that a long time ago when I preached on Daniel. It's a beautiful illustration of the power of God. But Darius the Mede takes over. He receives the kingdom being about 62 years old. They're wanting to convey in that about 62 years old. This is not a young man. This is not a foolish man. He has a wealth of experience bringing into leading this kingdom. So why? How on earth could he have been fooled by such an obvious plot to take Daniel out. Evil men know their king. They know him probably better than anybody else on earth. And let me read something to you from Luke 16. This is a parable that Jesus told. Luke 16, verse 8. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. This is where the man goes off to, to uh, forgive debts because his place has been removed by a king who was upset with him for cheating and stealing, most likely. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. So there is wisdom in evil, and yet it is an evil wisdom. So there's this shrewdness that evil men have. So they know which side of the bread is buttered. They know that they are in this position of power and authority in order to get wealthy, to steal from the king, but they have to hide that from his eyes. So they are, their antenna are up to any indication that that's going to change. So in order to accomplish their plot, they have to know their king. They have to know exactly what they need to say and how they need to say it. They have to know what his plans are, what his fears are, what his hopes for the future are, and mainly what his faults are. So they appeal to these. 
and they deceive him. He trusts these men. They abuse that trust. Perhaps also he's thinking, it's only 30 days. This will generate greater unity in my kingdom. They're all stealing from me. Maybe this will cause them to think twice before they do that again. So these men leave. They've set the trap for Daniel, and they must be so happy that they have this trap now laid for him. The king signs it. Scene fades. We know what's coming. Let me read verses 10 through 13. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. And they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king that Daniel who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Now, until this moment in chapter 6, we've only heard of Daniel through reputation. What did he accomplish? What are these evil men afraid of? And yet now we are entering into a scene where we are about to see his character tested. Daniel does not appear to be surprised by what's happened. I don't think he was entirely ignorant of the fact that there was some plan afoot. But let me again turn to Ecclesiastes and read something to you. Ecclesiastes 10 verse 4. If the spirit of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your post, for conciliation pacifies great offenses. Daniel chose not to try to preempt this plot against him, and yet now he knows that there is this law of the land that he is about to break, yet he just goes on about his business. This is the character of Daniel. He does not uh, abandon his post, he continues to do. What is his job? His job is to serve the king. His job is to do wisely, act wisely on behalf of the king. How can he do that if he abandons the source of all wisdom as Trevor so eloquently prayed earlier? And I asked him if I could borrow his prayer. He said, through wisdom, give me life. Lord, we acknowledge that your perfect word brings wisdom, and through that life, we want your wisdom, not just today, but at all times and in all things. And as we gain in wisdom, may it glorify you. Though grief and trouble come to us, your law is our delight. Your laws are forever righteous. Through wisdom, give us life. And 
God's Word is a closed book. We know this. It's a closed book to those that do not have eyes of faith. You've probably heard of the man that was imprisoned uh, for years in a dungeon, and he had a copy of the Bible with him. And yet, all he did was cover the wall with trivia about the Bible. He did not come to faith in all that time he spent in the prison. But he knew everything about the Bible. He knew, where the, he, he knew what the most common word was. He knew where the, mid, the exact midpoint of the Bible was by the number of the word count. He had done all that, but it was just words. It was nothing to him. It had no effect in his life. So see, when we come to God for wisdom through reading his word, what is it that we've often shared to you that is the secret to getting the most out of reading the Bible? You begin with prayer. Because when you pray, the Holy Spirit will open this to you. Your eyes will be opened. When we come at this Bible thinking we can just crack its wisdom and use it apart from the God who created it, it's closed to us. So, that is what Daniel was responsible to do, and so he kept doing what it was he was responsible to do. And in order to do that, he had to break the very law that the king had just passed that would cost him his life. But he was that type of a guy. So it wasn't just about him serving God and continuing with his customs. It was also about continuing to do his job. Both were true in this instance. Now, I want you to understand that this whole chapter, chapter 6, is about the testing of character. And it's not just Daniel's character that was tested. It was everybody's character. The title of this message is The Good, the Bad, and the Faithful. All of their characters were tested, and that's why they came out of this story, good, bad, or faithful. We Christians, as we walk through this text, I want you to remember, you are being tested. You are just like any character you want to choose from in this book. Are you going to plot to do evil? Are you going to do what it is you want to do to protect your turf? Or are you going to give that all over to God? Are you going to be faithful to him in this word? Or are you going to defend yourself? Are you going to rely upon God? Or are you going to do it yourself? That's the question. In our society right now, Christians are being tested. Will a Christian baker make a cake against their conscience just because everybody's telling them they have to or their business will be taken away. Their livelihood will be destroyed. They may be imprisoned. Will they do what they need to do? Will they stand in integrity, or will they cave? Will a military chaplain refuse to pray a prayer in Jesus' name because he's told that that's too far, that's off limits? You're going to offend people when you go that far. Will he cave? And let me tell you that a prayer not done in Jesus' name, is not a prayer to our God. It's mere words. Will we bow our heads in public? Will we say grace before meals? Or will we bite our tongues? Will we first think, am I safe here? Is this a safe place to bow my head? Or will I be accosted? We are always being tested, and who is it that's doing the testing? It's God. God is the one that refines your character. You have to look past the evil men that are attempting to do this, that God 
is ultimately the one doing it. Will you cave or will you stand? That's the question. So we go back to our text here and see that Daniel didn't even give a thought to caving in. That is not in his vocabulary. And so he continued to do this as was his custom. It is Solomon that advocated that this be done when he prayed the prayer at the temple when it was just afterwards when he completed that prayer. It's filled with the Holy Spirit. But he mentioned several times about looking towards Jerusalem, pointing towards Jerusalem and praying. Even if they go into captivity, God hear, God forgive. That was Solomon's prayer. And Daniel is fulfilling that in obedience to Solomon's prayer. He is looking towards Jerusalem every day, three times a day, praying to God, Jehovah. Now, we know, though, what happened. And so we have that, the reality of this, and the governors and the satraps who are evil, who have plotted this, they are so excited now. It's all coming together. They have Daniel at their mercy. They come to him, they see him in his window praying, and they think, what a fool this man is. Doesn't he know that we have him in our grasp? Now, I can't help but remember Dudley Do-Right and Snidely Whiplash. <laughs> Who knows Dudley Do-Right? I know, I'm too old now. Yeah, all, yeah, okay, some people do. But you have this evil villain who is constantly trying to have Dudley Do-Right's girlfriend, Nell, run over by a train. And in every show, he escapes. Dudley, Dudley saves her, even though he's very incompetent and can barely ride that horse. So anyway, that's what I see when I see these men. They are fools. They are the snidely whiplash. They're a character of evil. They think they've won, and they've not. God has a greater trap that is going on through the work of a good king that they had underestimated the character of. And they say, that Daniel, you can hear the disdain in their voice. How dare a captive from Judah be one of our governors? We are better than him. That's in their voice. That's what they're saying. He does not show due regard for you, O king. He makes his petition three times a day. But look at how this ends. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself. See, I think, I think that that ended a scene where they're getting the king and they come in there and the king has this shocked look on his face. I don't know if they are shrewd enough to sense that they've overplayed their hand a little bit. But I don't think so because there's more that comes later. Starting at Daniel 6.14, let's read through verse 17. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So the king gave the command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. 
Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Again, the governors and the satraps got their way. But they have forgotten that this all began with a lie and with a trick. I don't think even at this time that the king has not forgotten that. The king knows that he's been played. And even if Daniel were cast into the den and killed, I believe these men would have died as well afterwards. But we don't know. That's the path not taken. But still, I, th I think that when I read this, that's what I see. Because I see a good king. He's not a believer. He's not faithful. But I see a good man. They are so bold in their plot as to rub his nose in it. They barely give him the length of the day before they're reminding him of the law that must be carried out. So, Daniel is entombed with the lions. Now, this is the crescendo of Act 1. I wish I could convey it like they did in Wicked. It was really, really good. I mean, they have the Wicked Witch up in the air on cables. You can't even see them. There's smoke everywhere. There are all these flying monkeys flying around. So, just imagine all that. There's this dragon that they mounted above the, the stage, and it glows red, and it, and it starts opening its wings and flying around. It was very, very good. So that's what's happening right now. The, the, Daniel has been entombed. The king tells him what? The king says this, and it's beautiful. Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. But I ask you, do you think that King Darius did not have doubts as to what he was saying. Absolutely he had doubts. He's trying to give Daniel confidence. It's interesting, isn't it? You have this good king who doesn't know the Lord, who realizes the gravity of his error, who thinks Daniel's about to die for his stupidity, and he's trying to comfort him. I mean, I, th I think that's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of how God can bless his people through the ministrations of people that are, in a sense, in a worldly sense, good people. They don't know him. They don't know the Lord. But they're good people. Thank God for good people. Now, Act 2, Scene 1 opens. Now, how do you think this would open? We know from the text how it opens. Listen to what King Darius has been going through. Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no musicians were brought before him. Also, his sleep went from him. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice, to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? So you see what has happened. The king has spent a sleepless night. He's fasted. He's not slept. He's worried all night. That's not the behavior of a man with strong faith. But he came. He probably thinks he's going to find a mangled body or maybe some hair or clothing. But he came. 
because he needs to see this to the conclusion. He wants to know what happened. He needs to know what happened. So he calls out. Imagine this scene. You have this area of the stage where it's all dark. You don't know what's happened yet with Daniel in the lion's den. You see the king over here spending a fitful night on his bed. You see him rise with a lantern. He doesn't have any servants doing this for him. He's doing it himself. I'm the fool that made this law. I'm the fool that got Daniel in his trouble. I'm not passing this off to anybody. I'm taking responsibility for it. So he rushes off, and he calls out, and he says, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Imagine you're watching this as a play. You hear the king cry this out in a lamenting voice. And time passes. That's the way you do it in a play. We don't know how it happened in reality. Maybe, maybe Daniel had mercy on him and was trying right away. But I think if we do it as a Christian play next year, that this is what, where we'll pause and we'll wait and we'll let the audience stew. <laughs> I should have taken an intermission after Act 1, so this is now my brief intermission. What does Daniel say? What's I find funny about this is he says exactly what the evil men say when they came into the, his, the, evil, the king's presence the day before. O king, live forever. Now, that's a common greeting, no doubt. It's just what you said to kings. O king, live forever, may, so that I may too. O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths so that they have not hurt me. Because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Now, this is beautiful, you have to say. I mean, as a play, this is just a beautiful part of the play. Everybody's happy. Everybody's joyful. Except who? The evil people. So if it were a play, you would see the evil people over on the side, aghast when they hear Daniel cry out. What on earth is this guy doing crying out? How can he possibly be alive? Who fed those lions before we tossed Daniel down there? That's what they're thinking. How could my plot have gone awry? They're very proud of their plot. They were rubbing the king's noses in it earlier the day before. But they now know that their plot has not succeeded. Twice Darius has referred to Daniel and said, Your God, whom you serve continually. I believe he is also reminding himself, How could I have been such a fool to think that I could bar people from communicating with this God, my Daniel, whom I respect and admire, from communicating with his God. God is the source of wisdom. And yet for a moment, Darius forgot that. He didn't know that. He didn't know it like Daniel knows it. He just assumed away the source of wisdom that was Daniel's. Most men think wisdom comes out of cereal boxes or out of a magic eight ball or a daily horoscope. Most men are fools. Yet Daniel was no fool. And yet we know the king was no fool either. Yet he acted foolishly. And so he says, Was your God, whom you serve continually, able to save you 
from the lions. The scene ends with Daniel being removed from that lion's den. And he has said, in addition to saying, O king, yes, I'm alive, because I was found innocent before God, and also, O king, I've done no wrong before you, and yet Daniel has given the king now the ammo to do what is right, to do what is just, and the king does not hesitate to do that. Now, the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury, whatever was found on him, because he believed in his God. That scene ends. Now we have a new scene, and this is how exactly I think it's occurring. You've got over here, you've still got the den of lions, and you've got the evil men and their families being shoveled into it. You hear screams and roars and growls, but meanwhile, the king is over here quietly writing at his desk. So these scenes are both occurring on stage, and this is what Darius is writing. And the king gave the command, and they brought these men who had accused Daniel, and they cast them into the den of lions, them, their children, and their wives. And the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. These lions were hungry after all. Then King Darius wrote, To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of heaven, before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So that is how we see that play out in the end, with all of the evil being judged, the good king commending Daniel's God. It's not yet his God as what happens with Nebuchadnezzar. With Nebuchadnezzar, you feel that there was a full transformation there. We're not sure with Darius, but perhaps there was. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. I believe one of the reasons that this is such a well-loved, most beloved story of Christians is that it has this little happily ever after line at the end. We are humans. We are made in God's image. He made us to want the happily ever after line at the end of a good story, and we have it here. So we know that there are these people in this story, the good King Darius, that learns to respect Daniel's God. There are these evil men who are so caught up in their plot that they don't realize when they pushed it too far. They don't realize that they are about to be hoisted on their own petard, just like Haman was in the book of Esther. And then you have, obviously, the central character here, Daniel, who is and remains faithful to God, whose personal habits and behavior reflected a constant love and respect for God. And so my question to you and actually, let me comment uh, briefly, though. Um, before the sermon this morning, it was very nice. Kate came up to me 
And uh, she asked me, she says, Mr. Schwab, why are you preaching on such a common story from the book of Daniel when there are all these other things that are lesser known and really, really interesting? And I thought, what a good question. You're still 10, right? Yeah. What a good question for a ten, from a 10-year-old. And so then I, I answered her, and I said, well, I think we can grow accustomed to just not really thinking about the common stories. We don't think about the applications. We just read right through it. And then a few minutes later, we were in here, and, and Trevor said, Kate had a question for you. And I shared, he said, yeah, that's it, that's it. So anyway, I just wanted to share with you, that's what I want from the young people in this congregation. Talk to us. You know, we're people, too. You don't have to just ignore us, avert your eyes, and think, I'd rather go play. You know, I realize that I'm not going to go play with you, but the talking can be fun, and I really enjoy it and appreciate it. Now, there is a song that I could have chosen as the closing hymn, but I did not, Dare to be a Daniel. I want to just read the refrain, because I'd like to leave you with that refrain. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. May we all examine and adjust our habits and practices such that we are much more like Daniel in the future. And so if it is not your custom to do things that would let people know that you're a Christian, I really encourage you to adopt such customs. We live in a time in which we, yes, become targets, but that's, I think, what God would have us to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the power of story. And what's truly beautiful about the Bible is that so many of the stories that we treasure are truths. They really happened. They're history. You've had people live them such that we can relive them and benefit from their stories. Lord, we thank you for having protected Daniel by your angels that day. It's just remarkable to us the miraculous salvation that you gave him. And we thank you that there are good kings out there, that not all kings are evil, not all unbelievers are evil. And yet we thank you, Lord, that you do judge evil, that you will ultimately completely judge evil. We thank you for this promise, and for the uh, fact that we will live to enjoy it with you, a, a time of total peace and harmony forever. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.